This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello, thank you for tuning into the program today, and I'm glad you're with us. You've probably noticed that in these programs, I've not exactly stuck to the traditional ways of conveying Buddhist thought. Of course, all of these programs are based on Buddhist texts, because in Tibetan Buddhism, it is unusual for any kind of formal teaching not to be based on textual authority. Even the great teachers of Tibetan Buddhism usually have a text in front of them, even if they may not need to refer to it to get across what they're trying to say. Also, I personally really don't know enough about the Dharma to be able to talk without relying on those whose understanding is far beyond my own. So I talk via texts from the Tibetan tradition. This being said, however, I do try to find examples from our modern world and experience that shine meaning and understanding onto what the Buddha and his followers taught us. It's obvious to me that the truth expresses itself in multitude of ways in life. In fact, we can find it in some form in every situation if we know where and how to look for it. So it doesn't matter what era we live in or actually how we express the teachings, so long as the meaning is clear and we communicate well. It is for such reasons that, for instance, I include poems, snippets and articles from the internet in these programs that on face value may seem to have little to do with the words of the Buddha. But take a closer look and we might find something quite relevant to our discourse. Today our discussion starts with just such an article. It's by Omer Haik, a man who described himself as a coach, a lover and a vampire. Now do I have your interest? I hope so because we're going to take a pause here to think about our motivation as we usually do and adjust it where we find it lacking. Please, if you can, make participating in this program about gaining enlightenment to benefit all beings everywhere and free them from every suffering. In other words, helping them to become liberated and enlightened. This is the greatest motivation because it focuses on the happiness of an infinite number of beings, not just the one me. So let's think that way. But if you can't, then at least motivate for your own liberation. Thank you. Now back to Umeir Haik, coach, lover and vampire. It's an odd combination. Describing himself like that, is he just being hip and smart, catering to young audience who like to see themselves in shocking terms? Actually, no, he really means it. And this is how he tells his story on his website, umerhike.com. By the time I was 35, things were going surprisingly well. Not thanks to me. A teenage punk, a 20-something terrible musician, I was more surprised than anyone else to find myself where I was. Yet, there I was. I was at the top of my field. I'd written a few books. I was the most popular writer at Harvard Business Review. I gave talks, travelled the world, and helped run one of the world's greatest companies. I was living the dream. But I'm not really sure it was my dream. We'll get to that. First, just imagine me living a dream of tiny success. Well, that's a life many of us are told to want, right? 
So there I was, living it. And then I got sick, really sick. One day, I just stopped being able to eat. Terrible pain would knife through me. So I waited to get better. But I didn't. After a month of losing a pound a day, I was down to a spoonful or two of baby food a meal. I finally went to the doctor. He ran some tests and said, I'm very sorry, but you're going to die. Your labs are off the charts. You have lethal advanced cancer. I was a dumbstruck, numb. I got a second opinion, same as the first. I was healthy, young, vital. How could this be? Maybe it was fate, karma, or just dumb misfortune. I was going to die the very moment that I'd finally touched the sky. The irony, right? So there I was, at the peak of my career, about to die. I flew home to be with my parents. They felt panicked, afraid, and consolable, and so did I. Then something strange happened. I didn't die. I didn't get well. I just stayed sick, living on little dabs of baby food. The doctors were mystified. They didn't know why I wasn't dying. They said, maybe you don't have cancer. We don't know what you have, but you're still about to die. You definitely don't have long to live, maybe a month. So that's how I lived for a few years. I was supposed to going to definitely about to die next month, each month. Not dying, but constantly believing I was about to. That's strange, right? You might even think that's a pretty tough circumstance to think that you're going to die every month for years. But then something even stranger happened. For the first week, maybe, I'd been panicked, depressed, angry, resigned. But then all that vanished like smoke, and I wasn't any of those. Weirdly, I felt more peaceful, calm and grateful than I'd ever felt. Now, not because I was awaiting heavenly salvation or because I was sick of life. Remember when I said, maybe the dream I was living wasn't really my dream? Now I had some time and space just to think about it, to really evaluate my life, to be still, clear, calm, and to think about what a life is. And you know what? I was really happy for the first time. I was shocked too. How could I be about to die every single month, but finally be happy? There were three good reasons. Because I could look back on what I'd done with a sense of meaning, because I could just be now in that moment, pure, light, effortless. No burden of career, future, success ahead of me. And because, maybe for the first time in my life, I really saw. Whether it was a sunset or a rose or a person, I could just really see it, not try to get it, have it, seize it. And even if that little happiness lasted just a month, maybe that was enough. And then the strangest thing of all happened. While I was my sickest, I fell in love again. I was happy, right? When we're happy, we're open. I was open, humble, grateful, and so love found me. But that's not the strangest thing. The person I fell in love with was the one who instantly knew what had been wrong with me all this time. It wasn't cancer. It was the light. I have a very rare genetic condition where the light can cause me to go into organ failure. So vanishingly rare 
the doctors on three continents hadn't been able to figure it out. The thing that was killing me was the one thing we think of as the source, river, giver of all life, the light. The last thing that any of us would probably ever think if we got sick is the light is killing us, right? That's why whenever I felt sick, I went to my favorite place, the park, to relax, in the sun. No wonder I was at the edge of death for years. The condition I have is the foundation of the vampire myth, if you really want to know. Yes, the myths are weirdly actually all true. Too much sun and my gums recede, my mouth bleeds, I keel over in pain, about to die, and the only thing that fixes it is a bloody stake. My friends joke that since I was a teenage goth, always wearing black, everything makes sense. It's a joke, but only kind of. Everything did make sense. A death sentence, a disease, a curse, turned out to be a mighty gift. The light had broken something, but it had also somehow turned me into me. It hadn't broken me, it had broken the little shell I called myself. I met the person I loved, rethought my life, saw a truer path, and discovered happiness. None of that would have ever have happened if I hadn't got sick, right? So there I was, not dead, more alive, in every way. I hadn't just survived, I was happier, truer, gentler, wiser. I learned more in those months, certain to die, but not dying, than I had in the 35 years of struggle and success that had preceded them. What did I learn? Well, let me put it this way. Now, I write about the economy less. That's easy, and if you really want to know, I can sum it up for you in a sentence. It's not getting better because money is flowing in the wrong direction so much that interest rates are negative. I work with people more. Why? My illness turned out to be a gift, remember? If I can give the gift I receive to others, then that's right, true, and enough. But what do I do with people? I help them live more fulfilling lives. Why? Because that's exactly what my improbable, winding way taught me. I've been through a lot, and not just survived or thrived, all well, that's beside the real point, which is that I learned a few things along my improbable way about what it really means to be fully, truly, searingly alive. So that is why Umay Haik described himself as a coach, lover and vampire. It's pretty incredible, don't you think, and inspirational. So I decided to include it in our program today. But it wasn't really his story that I first intended to quote on the program. It was something he wrote on his website, an article he titled... Nothing belongs to you, you belong to everything, and subtitled, The Shore and the Ocean. That article goes like this. What's your most fundamental possession? Your home, your car, your wardrobe? It is yourself, your identity, memories and so on. Self creates all the problems in this little life, in this little world. Because it's the thing we defend most viciously, violently, vehemently, and yet, nothing belongs to you in this life. You belong to everything. You are trying to possess the shore, but you are already the ocean. The mind creates the thought of self. Whatever is I am, that is self. I am angry, needy, 
inadequate, empty, and so on. But in fact, the self is just a thought, and so it is empty of, ex of existence. So your mind creates this thought of self, and what happens now? Now this becomes your most fundamental possession, because it is the primary thought. Now you have to defend this little illusion with more thoughts. I am angry can be offset with I am happy. But the minute I am is threatened, then the mind reacts with all its strength to defend its self. How? Well, maybe it starts to accumulate more possessions, homes, cars. Maybe it begins to see people as possessions too and objectifies them. All these are little ways to protect the original illusion of self. Now someone insults, belittles, devalues your things. You try to win more and more things. Anger, hate, division arise. Without a self to protect, there's never any need for, any motive for them, is there? I don't mean that you should live like a monk with a bowl and a spoon. Here is what I mean. Nothing in this life truly belongs to you, in two senses. In the weak sense that everything is just borrowed from being. All things arise and pass. But also in the strong sense. There is no you at all. Self is just a thought in the mind. How can anything belong to an illusion? Go out and enjoy your material pleasures. Revel in them. Don't think for a moment that they are your possessions to be defended and accumulated. Then you are beginning with self. And where there is self, there can't be true happiness, peace, fulfillment. Just see them as little diversions, not as the struggle. What is the real struggle? When nothing belongs to you, you belong to everything. Not in the material sense. You're a monk who's given up on life, so now there's no jealousy in you. In the truest sense, the ocean in you, the abiding of your spirit. Nothing belongs to you means understanding the self and all its thinking is a mirage. Now everything belongs to you means you can see everything at last, as it really is. The moment you give up this idea of self, you also give up all its implications, possession, accumulation, conquest, and so on. Now, and only now, everything belongs to you. Now you can be with a person truly. Instead of having to have, own them, possess them, you can really see who they are. Instead of slaving your whole life to buy an island, you can just see the beauty in every sunset. Instead of always desiring more and never enjoying much, you can just see all that is and really be grateful for it. You've gone beyond possession. Now and only now are you truly capable of gratitude, compassion, kindness, creativity, defiance. All the names of love. Love is in everything. You are in nothing. Giving up means you gain all that is. Nothing belongs to you, you belong to everything. You want to own the shore, but you are already the ocean. Now why did I include this in the program today? Because of what we talked about last week. Remember, we spoke quite extensively about how we cannot actually own anything. Everything we say we own is only conventionally allowed for our use for a short period until such time as we are conventionally parted from it. We can only say we own things. We cannot actually own anything, not even our body or our self. Now this article 
puts it so much more beautifully. The whole discussion about ownership came out of a much greater argument for generosity. Remember what Deepak Chopra said in our quote last week. The basis for universal giving can only be expansion beyond our present sense of self. Merely turning the tables, expecting to be rewarded for how lavishly you give, won't work. Expansion of the self brings a direct experience of love, joy and the other things I mentioned. You get a glimpse of ecstasy, the state of standing outside yourself in the infinite field of being. Stand there and all the money in the world wouldn't buy a ticket back. You would wish to be there forever. Which is why Jesus offered those pungent words about storing up riches in heaven rather than treasure on earth. The mystery of giving is revealed only when you crave the ecstasy that has been glimpsed. Then a realization hits you with full force. I must give myself away. Without realizing it, you've been trying to do that all your life. In giving away yourself, you open a conduit for the kind of happiness that no one can ever steal from you. Someone said that permanent joy results when you can give away your last penny. Actually, the penny is only a symbol. Permanent happiness results when you no longer have a personal stake in the world. When you see through the constant needs of I, me and mine, no more needs will remain. There's only being, and then every breath is bliss giving itself to bliss. And that's the rhythm of life. I'm sure you've felt it. It came over you the last time you truly gave yourself away. You joined reality once more. You entered the space where holiness resides. Now doesn't this fit perfectly with what Omer Haik writes? This totally giving up of oneself and all one's attitudes, ideas, possessions and even self leads to bliss. So can we see how important the cultivation of giving is in our existence? As the discussion on ownership was born out of the argument for generosity, so the argument for generosity came about through teachings on love. You may remember some programs ago we read a quote on the value of love from a sutra mentioned in the text we're studying, Namka Pell's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. It was the sutra on the adornment of Manjushri's realm, and it goes like this. In the northeastern direction, which is said to be adorned by 1,000 realms of the universe of the extremely powerful enlightened being Maheshvara, every sentient being experiences happiness like the bliss of those bhikkhus who are absorbed in meditation on the cessation of suffering. Such good conduct extends over thousands of millions of years. Yet, were one person in our world to generate love for all sentient beings for even as long as it takes to snap his fingers, the merit he produced would be far greater. So what need is there to mention the value of abiding for day and night in meditation on love? That type of love is differentiated from our usual form of love for just a few beings by the name of great love as it focuses on all beings. It is this love that we've been talking about over the last few weeks when learning about transforming our body and possessions into all the things beings need for their well-being and happiness. The discussion of love came out of the line in the text Meditate on Giving and Taking. Now, as I said in a previous program, this refers to taking on all the suffering of others 
and giving them all one's happiness, which is love. Actually, generally, it goes the other way round. First, we take on the misery of others, and then we give them happiness, etc. However, our discussion has gone, gone in the order of the text advice. We have covered giving happiness, and now the text goes on to taking on suf- suffering of all beings, or great compassion. Once again, our compassion usually goes to those who are close to us. Of course, we may feel compassionate to others not so dear to us, but it's often not all that deep. As with great love, great compassion is a compassion that extends equally to all suffering beings, not discriminating between those close to us and those not so close. Great love and great compassion are the basis of bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to gain enlightenment to benefit all beings everywhere. And so that is why we are studying these two. We want to develop the mind of bodhicitta. His Holiness the Dalai Lama writes in his commentary to the Eight Points of Mind Training, Generally speaking, in the Buddhist tradition, compassion and loving-kindness are seen as two sides of the same thing. Compassion is said to be the empathetic wish that aspires to see the object of compassion, the sentient being, free from suffering. Loving-kindness is the aspiration that wishes happiness upon others. In this context, love and compassion should not be confused with love and compassion in the conventional sense. For example, we experience a sense of closeness towards people who are dear to us. We feel a sense of compassion and empathy for them. We also have strong love for those people. But often this love or compassion is grounded in self-reverential considerations. So-and-so is my friend, my spouse, my child, and so on. What happens with this kind of love or compassion, which may be strong, is that it is tinged with attachment because it involves self-reverential considerations. Once there is attachment, there is also the potential for anger and hatred to arise. Attachment goes hand in hand with anger and hatred. For example, if one's compassion towards someone is tinged with attachment, it can easily turn into its emotional opposite due to the slightest incident. Then instead of wishing that person to be happy, you might wish that person to be miserable. Now keeping that in mind, in mind training like the rays of the sun, Namkalpal introduces the section on compassion by speaking about compassion's benefits. He quotes Chandrakirti's supplement to Nagarjuna's treatise on the middle way with this, Because this alone is the excellent crop of the conquerors, the propagated seed and the water that sustains it, and the fully ripened fruit at the time of harvest, I first pay tribute to great compassion. Tranga Rinpoche, in his commentary on Chandrakirti's text, explains this verse like this. Why is loving-kindness, great compassion so important? It is important in the beginning of the practice because it is like the seed of the victor's abundant harvest, of the abundant harvest of the fruition of the Buddhas. Compassion is the seed. It is important in the middle because it is like the water and the fertilizer that causes that harvest to flourish. Along the path, one comes to realize that the sentient beings that one has set out to help are limitless in number and that they do all kinds of bad things to oneself and are sometimes not very grateful for the good things one does for them. It is because one has compassion that these different things do not cause us to regress on the path. Finally, compassion is important at the end of the path 
because it is like the ripening of the harvest, which can then be enjoyed for a very long time. So, compassion is important in the beginning, the middle and the end of the Buddhist path. Now let's just go into this a bit further. In the beginning of our spiritual journey, without compassion, especially for ourselves, we cannot even start on a spiritual path. For instance, I recently met up with a young friend, and during our conversation over a cup of coffee, he asked me about the importance of self-care. Now in the Western spiritual tradition, we are often encouraged to not think of ourselves, but always put others first. Now this is very noble, but it often translates into running ourselves down, diminishing or disadvantaging ourselves to the extent that we suffer mental or emotional problems or even breakdowns. As I told my friend, self-care and especially compassion for oneself is extremely important, especially at the beginning of a spiritual journey. At that time, we are fragile beings, often not able to practice well or understand the teachings very fully, even though we may have great enthusiasm. Then we need to take things carefully and be kind to ourselves, not pushing through long hours of practice or extensive good deeds or pounding our heads relentlessly with profound concepts. Being aware of our limitations, it is better we proceed slowly and carefully, doing as much as we can while keeping the mind happy and the body at ease. If we need to take frequent breaks or find that we act self-centeredly, that's okay. When you're a baby, you can only take baby steps. Also in the beginning of the journey, our real compassion for others may be small. But by practicing greater mindfulness and sensitivity and building our understanding, that little compassion can slowly develop. We're not being wise if under the initial enthusiasm of entering the spiritual path, we leap into all sorts of activities here, there and everywhere with the intention of being compassionate when we are actually simulating a concern that we don't really have. Our compassion may be tiny, but we can see whatever we have, no matter how small, as a seed that we can nurture into a sprout with the potential to become something much greater. It is often said that once one starts on the spiritual path, things seem to get much more difficult. Now, instead of going with the general society flow, one often has to hold oneself against it, and sometimes that brings misunderstanding or even aggression from others. And then at the end of the spiritual journey, one of the main reasons we will transform into a Buddha is the great flowering of that seed of compassion that we started out with. The Buddha's whole quest was to find a state free from all suffering. So when he found that state and then saw how beings in all directions were caught up in many different kinds of suffering, how could he not have great compassion? It was his compassion that persuaded him to spend most of his life teaching and helping others. In fact, without great compassion, it is impossible to reach the omniscient state. So one who becomes a Buddha by their very nature shows how important this compassion is. As Chandrakirti says, it is vital at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the path, and therefore he pays homage to compassion in his great work. And now we must say farewell, for our time is up. Thank you very much for joining the program today. I hope you'll do so again next time. Please dedicate, as usual, to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thanks a lot, and goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.